0: You're listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We will be joined by cancer experts to discuss blood cancer diagnosis, treatment, side effects management, and the importance of clinical trials. They will share their experience in treating patients and discuss strategies for optimal patient care. Let's get the conversation started.
1: Welcome to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. I'm Dr. Ken Miller. I'm a medical oncologist, hematologist, and an LLS volunteer, and I'd like to thank you all so much for joining us on this episode. Today, we're going to be joined by Dr. Ehab Atala, who's a professor of medicine, associate director of the Cancer Service Line, and section head of hematologic malignancies in the Division of Hematology and Oncology at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Ehab, thanks for
2: joining us. Uh, Thank you so much for inviting me, Ken.
1: So I have to say it's been so exciting within my career and so many of us to see what tremendous progress has been made in treating patients with CML. And I think, you know, as I've been looking at some of your work, one of the things I'm eager to talk about is, in many ways, what's sort of the next step? But I do want to ask you, can you review for us, The development of TKIs, what sort of led up to it?
2: You know, it's such an interesting story. So what can you tell us about it? Like you say, it's pretty amazing. So I've been, I think I would say I'm old right now. I've been around for quite some time and going back to 2001, 2003, even, yeah, up to 2003 almost, people who showed up with CML, you see a patient with CML, if you have a donor, you can get a transplant, you go to transplant. That was really the only option. 2001 is when imatinib was very first approved and came on the scene. And since then, things have just dramatically changed. With imatinib and all the other TKIs, the survival for patients with CML has really improved. Maybe um, in other countries, it seems to be similar to the general population. In the U.S., at least the data that we have, that the survival is close to the general population, but not really similar to the general population. Since imatinib, we've had... Uh, what, five other approvals. We Now we have for frontline, we have dasatinib, we have nilotinib, we have bositinib for frontline. So now we have four choices for frontline. And then we have for the relapsed uh, refractory space only, we have uh, ponatinib and acitinib So a total of 60 TKIs that we can choose for, for our patients. And well, wow. it's pretty amazing to have all that.
1: Yep, it sure is. So for someone diagnosed now, I'm interested, when you're meeting with a new patient just diagnosed with CML, I mean, they're coming in, I mean, often they've, you know, they've certainly been reading about it, but what would be your message to them
2: as they're sitting with often, understandably, a lot of anxiety? So I start with this is a very treatable disease, one. Two, you'll need to take pills. Yep. Three, no one really wants to take pills. No one really wants to have leukemia. No one wants to see me, period. Right. However, the treatment is tolerable. You need to take your t- pills. You need to stay adherent. After you start these pills, if you can't tolerate them well, we have other options for you that we could consider. And I also reassure them up front that 40% of patients who start at TKI end up switching and that's on clinical trials. So that's really not unusual to switch. So it's something I start with that I tell them upfront, like there's a 40% chance we would switch this pill. Don't feel disappointed. You didn't do anything wrong. Right, right. And you do well, you stay on your pill, then four or five years from now, we can discuss stopping. But during these four to five years, you really, really need to take your pills. Yeah, you know, let me ask you. In, you,
1: in your experience, in terms of uh, adherence to treatment, you know, there are a group of patients who are profoundly adherent, and then there's not. There's some patients who aren't. Percentage wise, how does that break down? I mean, what what percentage of patients are non-adherent or not strictly adherent?
2: Yeah, that's a really important question. The um... Surprisingly for the younger patients, the less than 40 or I think more than less than 30, the adherence is actually really low. Wow. Uh, very, very low. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the adherence just slowly increases after that. For older patients, I think because they're already used to taking some medications, most patients are used to taking some medications. So sticking to another pill is I think is a little easier.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: The non-adherence in the different groups really, I think, varies, right? Like for the younger group, if you have a young person that used to run five miles, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And now they can't run the five miles. Well, that's really affecting their quality of life. So on that day, they're not going to take the pill because they want to run. They want to play basketball, right? You change that to the older group, and it really is about more like the significant uh, side effects and their interactions with their medications. So... It really varies by the group, the level of adherence, and what I've noticed in in my practice. And can I promise I'm a good doctor and I talk to my patients? It's just <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> the younger patients, it's hard to maintain their adherence.
1: Yeah, yeah. Now, I have to say I've had a little bit of the opposite experience. I
2: don't have uh,
1: obviously a huge population of people with CML, but I have over the years treated a number we'll call it. But some of my older patients, because of uh, tolerance, have sort of uh, directed their own care. And they say, well, instead of taking 400 milligrams, I'm going to take 300, or I'm going to take 200 one day and 400 the next. I always try to keep in mind, you know, is it the Gleevec? Is it the interaction? Or is it really unrelated? So how do you sort that out? What's really causing the side effects?
2: So, I start out with unrelated, right? Are you fatigued? Is it sleep apnea? Is it your thyroid? Is it your, your infection, right? Like you sort of work through all the unrelated, depending on the side effect, of course. And then try to manage it with medications if possible. So, if there's diarrhea, you try to add antidiarrheal, et cetera, nausea, you try to add that. So, that's one, two. The third option um, is then to can this patient reduce the dose? So, we do have from studies that. Lower, once patients achieve a deep enough remission, then can you lower the dose? And that's definitely an option, especially in, uh, in older patients. Uh, we know from a Destiny trial, which was a stopping trial, where patients before they stopped, they reduced their dose first. We have a low dose desatinib study up front where patients used 50 milligram. We have another nilotinib study where patients, once they achieve a deprimission, reduced nilotinib dose. Hmm. So in patients who are having side effects and responding well, very important, responding well, then a lower dose with close monitoring is definitely an option. And lastly is to switch the drug. So if I have someone who's not responding that well and also having significant side effects, but I can't really lower the dose, these are the patients that I discuss switching. Are the side effect profiles different enough that
1: you're likely to see better tolerance with one than the other? Or is there, you know, unfortunately, are the side effects of one likely to be there with another one as well?
2: That's the beauty of having so many is that we can uh, we can find drugs that have less side effects. But the thing we, we need to remember, and our patients also is really important, I tell them nothing's for free, not in terms of cost. Everything has side effects, right? Yep, yep. So when you switch, don't expect that you'll have a perfect life with that. So there is some cross intolerance. And what was really seen mostly is the cytopenias. So cytopenias, if someone is cytopenic, there is some cross intolerance moving from one drug to the other. But in terms of other side effects, for example, effusions with the satinib, if you switch, they'll probably be okay. The fatigue, the muscle cramps, the nausea, vomiting with matinib. if you switch, they'll probably be better with nilotinib, the pancreatitis, with uh, busitinib, the LFTs, and the rash. So with those, if you switch from one TKI to another, you probably will have a a good response.
1: When patients are taking medicines for a long time, you know, such as TKIs, for five years, some of the patients uh, have been on these for 10, 15 years, etc., multiple other problems are likely to arise just with time. So I did want to ask you, what have you seen and what is the literature showing in terms of late and long-term effects from long-duration TKI
2: use? So that's a really hard question to answer because, like you said, someone could have an impaired GFR where they're getting older, so they could have an impaired GFR anyway. Dementia could be happening anyway. Is it related to the drug? So there's only uh, one study, which was the nolotinib and matinib, which continued follow-up for 10 years. But the other studies, such as dasatinib, the randomized dasatinib study, the randomized Busitinib study, only followed for five years. So the very long-term side effects are not clearly known. We really need population data. So in the U.S., we have the, um, the H. John Corey Cure CML Consortium, which is uh, 19 academic centers with CML specialists. And we have an open CML registry to collect data to specifically look at that question, to also look in real world, like patients on trials, that's where we have all our information from, they're handpicked, right? I mean, we all know they're pretty good shape, they have less comorbidities, but the patients that you and I and we all see in the clinic are not so perfect, right? They have other comorbidities and things like that. True. So we are hoping that through this registry we would be able to understand more the very long term side effects.
1: So again, I looking at some of the work you've published, which has been on discontinuing the TKIs. It is a very interesting to think about. Geez, what are the side effects of stopping the drug? So, and it's not something, at least for the for the generalist like myself, that I have seen it as much literature on, but I know it's here. F- fill us in. What, you know, what do patients note when they discontinue TKIs?
2: So It's really, uh, it's really interesting. When uh, the discontinuation, about 30% of patients develop this uh, TKI withdrawal syndrome. It's mostly presents with hand pain and joint pain, and it usually resolves within 6 to 12 months in our study, actually, three patients required the restart of their TKI because of how bad the pain was. I mean, they went through steroids, narcotics. And when we got to narcotics, the patient and I were like, I don't know. I think I better put you back on your, I can't remember which TKI. So that's the first side effect. The second side effect is anxiety. So when we, uh, this, the study that we had was a, was an NIH funded grant. And Uh, When we submitted it, the reviewers suggested having a psychologist involved. I'm like, come on. That's just why do you need a psychologist? They are actually right. We needed a psychologist. Yeah. And I, I really want to apologize to that person. I will never know who they are. The patient's anxiety really increases. And some patients even describe it that because here you have a patient who's coming in every three months, every six months, they're doing well, they're taking their pill every day. And now you're asking them to come in monthly for lab checks. And every time, like, am I going to restart? Am I going to restart? And when they restart, it's very anxiety provoking because they were, you know, at a steady level. And now you're telling them, well, you might go off. Mm -hmm. And then they don't go off. And now they're super anxious. So that's the second side effect we have to talk to our patients about. The third side effect is the frequency of monitoring. And we never thought of... I mean, we always think about it, but really became very exaggerated during COVID because in the first six months, uh-huh. patient need, needs, they need to be monitored monthly. Right. And for 18 months, every other month, and then every three months forever. So the frequency of monitoring became an issue, very highlighted during COVID where people did not want to come in and yes. get checked and, and all that.
1: So you're saying, I, because I want to make sure I understand, you're saying it's going back to this high degree of monitoring that's troublesome for patients.
2: Correct. Going back to during COVID, mm-hmm. just the idea of coming to a healthcare facility once a month or leaving the house once a month, right? Where the people were not excited about that. Yeah,
1: yeah. So again, mainly uh, arthralgias, myalgias. Were there were there other things that again we community should know about? We talked about the psychosocial component.
2: These are the main things. The other thing that I address up front too, Ken, is that. When you stop the drug, even if you have an undetectable PCR, it may become detectable. Yeah, yeah. And if it becomes detectable, that's not an indication to restart. We only restart with loss of MMR. This is a very important point to emphasize and reemphasize because once they see that PCR come back positive, there's an immediate panic, understandably so.
1: All right. I really want to drill down on that because I think it's somewhat fascinating because we do talk about, you know, the importance of a a deep remission, how wonderful it is a complete, you know, a a molecular remission. So if you would debunk that a little bit for us, why, in a sense, we can get a positive result and not be driven to do something. What's your experience with people living with minimal residual disease?
2: So I have examples from the study and from patients off studies where they have a detectable level and it's been 10 years now where they haven't developed clinical disease. And that's just not my experience. It's what's in the literature and my experience too. And no one really has a good answer for that, Ken. There are theories out there. And by the
1: way, like what? <laughs> because I, uh, I just think it's a fascinating topic and it actually leads to a whole bunch of other questions and other diseases as well. So yeah, so what, what are some of
2: the theories and, and, and what do you think? So I'll start with my favorite theory. So my favorite theory was work done in Australia where they looked at the BCRA, but then they looked at lymphocytes and granulocytes. Mm-hmm. And the patients who had, in a small number of patients, The patients who had BCR-able positivity in the granulocytes, they all relapsed. The ones that had it in the lymphocytes, not all of them relapsed. Right. So that's why it's still a theory. So the theory is that what we're picking up on the PCR are memory T cells. That have the Philadelphia chromosome. Yeah, yeah. So they're not myeloid that are leading to the disease. Sure. So that's theory one. Theory two is related to the telomeres. So some studies, not all studies, have shown that if you're older, you have a better chance of achieving TFR. And that theory is that if you have shorter telomeres, then your stem cell, just like every every other cell in our body, is more likely to die. So you have a detectable level, but your CML stem cell has a shorter telomere. So as time goes by, it just dies off. So that's the second theory. The third theory is that our immune system kicks in. Right. So there have been a couple of studies which show that the NK cells in patients who stay off drug and stay in remission have higher percentage of NK cells. So these are the three ongoing theories. Right. But if I can find the real answer, it would be awesome. Yeah, it would be. So we're counting on you. Okay. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, actually, I used to hear that from my mother. She said, you, you need to find a cure for cancer. <laughs> so,
2: <laughs> well, that's a good motivation, I guess.
1: <laughs> you know, it is. It is. It, was, it really came from a wonderful place. You know, you've mentioned TFR, which I, you know, there's so many abbreviations in the work that we do. There's, you know, disease-free survival and overall survival and time to progression. Okay, so for those of us which actually in
2: includes me until very recently. What is TFR? So TFR is treatment-free remission, and that's the term that we use. And you can see why it's used, right? Because we're afraid to use the word cure, right? We're still afraid to use that word. Even no matter how long patients have been off a drug, we're still afraid to use. So it's treatment-free remission, You're off the drug for a period of time instead of using the word cure, which is a hesitancy because patients need to continue to get checked Mm -hmm. for essentially forever. Uh, Their PCR needs to be checked uh, forever. So
1: I want to ask about a few scenarios. So if you have a patient who continues to be in molecular remission, after discontinuing a TKI, what's the latest relapse you've seen? For that matter, what, you know, what is the median amount of time before a relapse? And then building on that, what would cause you to either watch the patient or to say, no, we, got, we need to do something?
2: So let's start with the first one. So the uh, deep molecular demission for stopping is a level of 0.01% for at least two years. Um, patients are monitored very closely for the first six months, less closely for two years, which is every two months, and then every three months after that. And the reason that schedule is set is that most recurrences happen in those first six months. Right. So that's why the monitoring is so close. Hmm. We do have patients that have a recurrence of their loss of MMR. Loss of MMR is a level more than 0.1%. And that's when we restart treatment all the way up to three years. The latest recurrence that has happened um, in studies, there have been even recurrences seven and 10 years out.
1: Okay. All right. So, so it really does justify, you know, obviously lifelong monitoring. You know, if, Ehab, uh, let me ask you this if a patient um, asked you, you know, let's say who's been off drug for, for 10 years, uh, you know, Dr. Atala, am, am I cured? Uh, what,
2: what would you say? I would say to the best of my knowledge, most likely. Yeah. I will always remain gray. No, it's. <laughs> I would say to the best of my knowledge, most likely. Yeah. However, that does not exclude from continuous monitoring. We just don't have the data 15, yeah. 20 years out. We don't.
1: Right, right. Okay. Uh, thank you. And I, I agree with you. It is still... Uh, um, it's actually a topic I published on, but use of the word "cure" in cancer care, and um, uh, about eighty percent of at least the survey population of uh, doctors uh, at Dana Farber do not use the word "cure," or at least did not at that time. Interesting. Yeah, I think it is too. Well, looking at the levels you were talking about, the point oh one level. Let me extrapolate back or ask you to extrapolate back to a different situation. What about the patients who never get a molecular remission, who always have low levels of the BCR-ABLE and, you know, they've been on different drugs and they've had side effects and they may or may not have been compliance issues. So with this sense of people being able to cohabitate with the disease, are there situations that you, you wouldn't keep pounding away with different medicines or different strategies, and you let the patient live with that level of disease.
2: Absolutely. If, they, if patients have a level of less than even 1% that mm-hmm. is not going up, yeah. and they're doing well, this has remained the gold standard for overall survival is a level of 1%. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's better to be less than 0.1%, but if you have someone who stays below 1% and stays there, you're good as long as they don't double up. And that's as long as their PCR does not rise. The guidelines, uh, we have the NCCN guidelines and the ELN guidelines, and they both acknowledge that less than 1%, because that is what correlates with complete cytogenetic remission. So if you remember way back, we used to do bone marrow biopsies. We rarely do bone marrow biopsies now. Right. So that 1% coincides with complete cytogenetic remission. And survival has always correlated with complete cytogenetic remission. Mm -hmm. So if you have someone who is less than 1%, you're good. The chances that that person would achieve TFR is low because if they've been two, three years out and they're still there, that they would achieve treatment-free remission is lower, but the survival should be the same. So I wouldn't change anything in a patient like that. So let me,
1: because I have to say, when I'm asking, I really have some patience in Biden's.
2: So, again, the
1: patient who's intolerant of the TKIs, running around 1% are there situations that you would, again, discontinue drug and and monitor? And even a broader question that's related for patients who progress off of the TKIs, are we losing uh, the window of opportunity uh, to bring them back into a stable partial remission or a a stable uh, complete remission for that matter?
2: So your first question is if someone is hovering around 1% and they're having a lot of side effects. That would not be someone I would stop. I could mm-hmm. temporarily hold until their side effects go away, mm-hmm. but definitely would not stop that person, that patient. Right. And that's based on really old data that if patients don't have that deep remission mm. and you stop them, they have a higher chance of progressing to accelerated phase and blast crisis. Got it. That would be someone I would strongly consider switching to another TKI to try to get them maintain that remission and have them to continue to take their drug.
1: Mm -hmm. Okay.
2: The second question.
1: Well, I want to address the issue of, you know, when you stop and a patient relapses, has a molecular relapse, what percentage of those are you able to get back into remission? And do any of them, you know, progress and die of their disease uh, after a, a trial of discontinuing the
2: drug? So... 99.9% 99.9% of patients go back to their original deprimition. Wow. So just about everyone does. There is a small percentage, and if you look in the literature, there is a case reports of patients who stopped and then progressed to accelerated phase or blast crisis. Mm-hmm. And, the, and these are very well acknowledged. However, if you look at CML on drug, so patients who are on drug, they're doing great, the chances of progressing to accelerated phase and blast crisis is about 0.4%. percent hmm hmm Okay. So you could have someone who is very stable yep. and then yep. suddenly their disease takes off many, many years out. That can happen with or without drug. Yep.
1: Yeah. Excellent. Thank you. That's uh, such important information. So this is a really good opportunity to take advantage of your expertise. Where do you think the field of treatment for patients with
2: CML is going? What are the things you're excited about? So there's a few things uh, I'm excited about. First, that we have interest in research, and CML is, is, is being ignited again, or people are working on it again. Um, and perhaps through the CML consortium, our goal is to really cure patients, though. And, and cure essentially means off-drug without any evidence of disease. Right. Um, so we're trying to get there through the different avenues. So the first avenue is we're testing a Asimunib, which is currently approved for third-line therapy evaluating it upfront in patients with newly diagnosed CML, and then if they don't respond well, we're adding a TKI to it mm-hmm. to get patients to a deeper remission. We have two other studies looking at patients who attempted to stop, but their disease came back, they had a molecular relapse, mm-hmm. and then adding either in one study roxalitinib and another study asiminib, which is second TFR, attempting a second TFR. So that's another group of patients, which is patients who attempted to stop and were not successful in stopping and their disease came back. The other thing we're working on is understanding on a population level is what I talked about earlier. In real world, uh, what's the best sequence of TKIs? We just don't know what the best sequence of TKIs. We don't know in patients who have multiple comorbidities, which is the best one. So we're hoping through this national registry that we would be able to answer that. And finally, an area where we still struggle in is an area of the accelerated phase and blast crisis. So about 5 to 10% of patients still progress to accelerated phase and blast crisis. And the data for that small population of patients is really, really limited. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's an area that we want to work on, understand more, um, and develop clinical trials for that population. But understandably, it's a rarity and a rare disease. So to have studies for that group of patients is something that is difficult, but very important for these patients.
1: You know, along those lines, what is the mechanism of acceleration? Do you know? Do we know?
2: We know sort of the headlines of it, Ken. We know that it's either BCR-ABLE-related, where patients can develop a mutation, and we know there's BCR-ABLE-unrelated, mm-hmm. where there's no mutation in the BCR-ABLE-detected, but they can develop other chromosomal abnormalities. Or So we know sort of the title of it, yeah, but we yeah. don't really know why.
1: also wanted to go back even just a couple minutes. And and I, by the way, I found it very interesting, the two trials you mentioned, one using ruxolitinib and the other... Asiminib. Asiminib. Yeah. What are the hypotheses there? And it also gives, uh, you know, ruxolitinib I'm more familiar with and asimidib I'm not. So I'd love to learn more about those.
2: So roxolitinib, as we all know, is a JAK-STAT inhibitor. And studies done at Moffitt showed that BCR-able signaling downstream of the BCR-able signaling is the JAK-STAT pathway. Mm-hmm. So the theory is if you also block the JAK-STAT pathway plus the BCR-able pathway, could you actually kill more stem cells and get more patients to a treatment-free remission? So that's the theory there. Right. Asiminib, is a, a stamp inhibitor. So it's a mirror steel pocket inhibitor. Mm-hmm. So it also binds to ABL, but all the TKIs, the five of them, other than asiminib, they bind to the ATP pocket of the ABL kinase. Yeah. Asiminib binds to a different spot, which is the mirror steel pocket. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the theory is, is if you block the ABL, both the ATP and the mirror steel pocket, could you get better results and could patients get to a deeper remission? Right. So that's the theory of the combination to see if we can get more people to a deeper remission.
1: Got it. Thank you. I wanted to ask you about cardiac toxicity. That's something we didn't talk about earlier, but what is the cardiac toxicity in
2: patients on TKIs? So for patients on TKIs, ponatinib was probably the main drug, which is it's a very effective drug, but is associated with significant cardiovascular toxicity. And it probably is the drug that started cardio-oncology almost. And it was, if people remember, it was taken off the market because of cardiac toxicity and then brought back on the market because in some patients, it's the only drug that works for them. Following that, we've seen, based on long-term data, that TKIs have a cardiovascular toxicity. Nolotinib, approximately about a 7 to 10% cardiovascular toxicity. The satinib and bocitinib about a 5% cardiovascular toxicity, and imatinib, approximately a 2% cardiovascular toxicity. Mm-hmm. So imatinib, to our knowledge, has the lowest cardiovascular toxicity compared to the second generation compared to ponatinib. Yeah. Asiminib, in the studies as of right now, we haven't seen any significant cardiovascular toxicity, but it's too early to tell. That's something that needs to be monitored and watched as we go along. What does that mean to us? Is that if you start your patient on a TKI, optimizing their cardiovascular care is really important. Having a discussion with their primary care, making sure their blood pressure is under control, making sure their cholesterol is under control is a really important point. I personally don't remember how to do this, which is embarrassing. So I have them go back to their primary care and they need to be optimized in their cardiovascular care.
1: Yeah, which, by the way, is a wonderful reminder that, you know, again, with people, patients who are being treated for cancer and, in a sense, living with cancer as a, or without cancer, as a, sometimes as a chronic disease, sometimes in remission, uh, all the other things go on in their care. So, uh, so that partnership with primary care is important. Lastly, I just want to ask you, what are some resources that uh, you find are helpful for patients and families who are uh, living with or without CML?
2: So uh, I don't say this because LLS is supporting, uh, but the LLS uh, patient education booklet is a really, really good booklet that's updated and it's very appreciated. So it's probably one of the best resources for patient education. Excellent. And I agree. Uh, again, this is uh, Dr. Ken Miller,
1: and I have to say, it's just been a really interesting discussion. It was uh, actually a great opportunity for me, and I hope for you as well, to learn a lot about CML, including really the concept of uh, TFR, treatment-free remission in this disease, which is uh, really exciting. And with that in mind, I want to thank, again, Dr. Ehab Atala, who is a professor of medicine and section head of hematologic malignancies at the Medical College of uh, Wisconsin. Ehab, thanks for being with us.
2: Thank you so much, Ken, and I hope this was interesting to you all, and thank you for listening.
1: Thank you. I'd like to thank all of you for listening to this informative episode and for this program and for a listing of all of our healthcare professional continuing education activities, podcasts, and healthcare professional resources. Please visit lls.org slash CE. For any questions or to refer a patient, please contact our Information Resource Center by calling 800-955-4572. Information specialists provide personalized one-on-one support to help patients learn about their disease, treatments, financial, and other support resources. And I want to encourage all of you to sign up to receive notifications of future podcast episodes by subscribing at treatingbloodcancers.org. We look forward to you joining us on future podcasts.
0: Thanks for listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We can be found on iTunes and other podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.treatingbloodcancers.org and provide your suggestions for future topics. Visit our archive section on our website for other great podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and on Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society and access our professional continuing education activities by visiting lls.org CE. Let's keep the conversation going. Until next time.